But let's begin our time again just by praying to him and asking him to bless our time together. Our sovereign Lord and King, we come before you again this evening, this afternoon, thankful that you are not only King of the universe, but you are also our King. That you have set your love upon us, that you have transferred us from out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of your Son, whom you love. And so, our Lord, we look to you even this afternoon again, asking that you would use the very means that you have given to us of your word, the means of your spirit, to guide us, to teach us, to instruct us, to help us, to know your will and your way with us. So would you be exalted in our midst? Would you help us? And would you receive all the glory? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, our subject this afternoon is the calling of the missionary. You could also put it this way, the missionary call. And I want to begin by saying this is a vitally important subject for us to have a right understanding of. If we don't understand this, then we can fall into, you could say, one of two traps or pitfalls. On the one hand, if we have a wrong understanding of it, then there are those going as missionaries, maybe, who are not actually called and who shouldn't be going. But on the other hand, a misunderstanding of the missionary call or a call to the mission field can cause those who ought to go to not go, to refrain from going. Uh, David Sills, who our brother Jerry mentioned in his book, which I would commend to you, it's called The Missionary Call. It's helpful for this subject. He says this, A misunderstanding of the missionary call who receives it and how it comes to people has probably kept more people from going to the mission field than any other reason. Now, that situation for us is actually more complicated and not helped by the fact that there are confusing and contradictory ideas about what a missionary call is. How do we even understand what the missionary call is? Some say things like this. You have to have a personal call that comes to you in some kind of extraordinary and mystical way. Eric Wright, in his book, this is a helpful book as well, A Practical Theology of Missions, he speaks of this and he writes this, Whenever people talk about who should serve as missionaries, the need for a clear sense of divine call is usually mentioned most frequently. The importance of the call has been exaggerated to such an extent that many look for some mystical experience mirroring that of Gideon, Isaiah, or Saul. And this is probably the most popular view in, uh, among evangelical Christianity of what a call is. And it often comes out of really an unbiblical view of understanding how we discern God's will and what he calls us to do in this life. And many have recognized this problem, though, and they've kind of swung the other way. So you have some respond and react by saying things like this. There's no such thing as a missionary call at all. You can even find this maybe in response to those who are looking for a mystical kind of experience. Jim Elliott, who, again, we heard of earlier, who went to the Aka Indians. In his journal, one of the times when he was wrestling with the fact that many are not going to the mission field, he said this in his journal, Our young men are going into the professional fields because they don't feel called to the mission field. We don't need a call. We just need a kick in the pants. 
another uh, man who was a longtime, I guess, leader of the Sudan Inland Mission, Raymond Davis, responded this way. He said, The concept of a call as a necessary introductory experience for serving God cannot be scripturally substantiated. Some, like Paul, did have such an experience, but many others didn't. We've built up the idea of a call into something which simply was not known in the early days of the early church. Others will say things like this. uh, We don't really need a personal call because we have the call in the Great Commission. Since we have the command, all we need to do is go. So which is it? Is there a call? Is there not a call? If there is a call, what is it? How do we understand it? And maybe more uh, poignantly, the question is, how do I know if I'm called to go to the mission field? Well, when you have a question like this, where do we go? Where do we turn? We know. We go to the only infallible rule of our faith and practice, which is the scriptures. So that's where we're going to turn uh, this afternoon. If you take your Bibles, please, and turn to the book of Acts. Read first a portion there in chapter 11 about the work in Antioch. Acts chapter 11. And then we'll flip over uh, to the end of chapter 12 in the first part of chapter 13. So hear now God's holy word. Acts 11, verse 19, down to verse 30. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch for a whole year. They met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Jumping down to the end of chapter 12, verse 25, we see that Saul and Barnabas go to Jerusalem. They bring the relief. And then it says in verse 25, And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who's called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, which... While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. 
So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived to Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. Amen. There's where we'll end the reading of God's holy, infallible, inspired and inerrant word, and may he write his truth upon our hearts. Well, I want to open up this text for us, particularly in actually chapter 13, by considering three things. Sorry, I don't have handouts for you this morning, but or this afternoon. But the three points that we're going to consider are this. First, let's consider the context of this particular missionary call. What was the context in which it came in? Then secondly, the content of that call, what was actually said. And then the consideration of the missionary call today. What bearing does this have on us today? And how do we discern the call today? So first, consider with me then the context of this missionary call. And here, our brother Jerry really helped us out. He kind of took what I was going to say. I can just say, look at what he said. (laughs) The call comes in the context of the new covenant kingdom of the risen Christ. That's the context of this call. And we must see that in this passage. Another way of saying it, it's important for us to understand the missionary call comes in its biblical, theological, redemptive, historical context. And at the widest angle lens, it's a call that, as our brother Jerry said, is rooted in the very plan and purpose of God. It is rooted in that wonderful covenant of redemption. And what we see in space-time history is the outworking of that covenant. We have the outworking of it unfolding for us here But what you need to understand at this point, then where are we in redemptive history? Where are we in the outworking of it? We're at that place in the outworking of God's plan and purpose in which the Lord Jesus Christ has already come. He has been the sent one, sent from the Father in heaven down to the earth to come in the form of man to take on a true body and a reasonable soul. And he came as our substitute and he walked on the earth. He was incarnated. And you see there the missionary God sends his missionary, the one that he has called to go, Jesus Christ, to do the only work, the work that he only could do in our place. He lived, he suffered, he died, and he was raised from the dead. And so at this point, redemption has been accomplished. It is done. But you need to remember the context of the book of Acts. And you know these things, but I want to remind you, what we have here is Christ working as the ascended Lord from heaven through the Spirit in his church. That's what the book of Acts is. Uh, Christ is still active. You remember how the book of Acts begins. He says, Luke writing, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach. In that whole book, he gave redemption accomplished in that sense. What Christ began to do and teach on the earth. But the implication of that is, this book, Theophilus, is what Christ continues to do and to teach from the throne at the right hand of God in heaven. And so that's the context. It is the context in which the kingdom of Christ has come. That is the first thing that Jesus himself preached. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the kingdom is at hand because the king is at hand. 
And so we have the kingdom on the earth. We don't have to wait for Christ to return again and set up some millennial kingdom and rebuild all these things. No, it is here. And he has restored the kingdom to Israel, which you see in the first part of Acts. And he's taken it even further. This is such an important thing for us to see. It's in the context of Christ building his kingdom, expanding his kingdom, that this is taking place. Um, And so we have the king on the throne, and he has already given his commission. He's already given his command. Uh, We see the commission, of course, we saw from Matthew 28. You can see it in Luke 24, in Mark 16, uh, and in John 21, 22, or 21. You, You see it in those things, in those places, but you also have it in Acts. And the commission given there, remember, in Acts 1, 8, but you will receive power, he says to his apostles, when... The Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And that really structures, doesn't it, the rest of the book of Acts. And it's then that he, he goes forth, and you see him pouring out his spirit upon the church there at Pentecost. You see the kingdom being restored to Israel, as it were, as 3,000 come to Christ. And who were they? Where were they from? What, what people group? They were Jews, 3,000 Jews that come back, as it were, restored kingdom in that sense. You see it go to Judea and Samaria. And so now at this point, here we are at the cusp, the brink of it going even further to the very ends of the earth. I just want to go back and make a statement then about Isaiah 49.6 that our brother Jerry said. And you remember how the father speaking to the son, he says, it is too light a thing that I should restore the kingdom, as it were, just to Israel. But I will also make you a light to the nations. And you see, the book of Acts is the outworking of Isaiah 49.6. That's what it is. You see the kingdom restored to Israel, and then you see it being taken all the way to the Gentiles, to the ends of the earth. So this is the context of the missionary call in that sense. It comes in this big context of the new covenant kingdom of the risen Christ. But in the particular passage of Acts 13, it comes in the context of the local church, particularly the church in Antioch. And here we must remember and understand the one institution, which is the institution that Christ has commanded and commissioned, is his church. The local church is the focus of his redemptive work going forth, being applied on the earth. And it's coming into the context of this local church here in Antioch. Now, I want you to realize a few things about this church. What's going on in this church when uh, the call, as it were, comes through Christ, through his spirit, to, to the church there? What are some of the things that we can say about this church? We saw how it was formed earlier in Acts chapter 11. And really, it was those who had gone out from Jerusalem, the persecution. And what were they doing? Proclaiming Jesus Christ, it says. Preaching the gospel, making disciples, and gathering these that weren't just Jews, but also others, Gentiles as well. And they formed this church. Barnabas is called to come. Barnabas gets Saul, they call, and they form into a local church according to the mind of Christ. A church that has both officers and members. And you even see that at the beginning here in Acts 13, that it's talking about the prophets and the teachers, the officers in the church. So you have a church that's been formed by Christ come into its 
uh, in that sense, being fully formed. We'll talk more about that tomorrow as we talk about kind of a three-self church and what that means to be uh, fully formed in that sense. But you have a church that's formed in that way. And it's a church that's still in vital union with Jesus Christ, even though they're made up of people that are very diverse and different. You can see that in the way that even just the leaders are described. You have, of course, Barnabas, which we know from other parts of, uh, of Acts that he was a Levite, also named Joseph. He's a Jew. But then you have a man named Simeon, who's also called Niger. Here is someone who wasn't a Jew, but a Gentile, and in fact was an African, most likely. Niger meaning black. The same is thought of Lucius as well, of Cyrene, that he was probably from Libya. And then you also have someone like Menean, someone from uh, the high parts of society, as, he were, as it were. He was a friend of Herod the Tetrarch. He was the one that was familiar with the political leaders of the day. And yet Christ called him to salvation and also to serve in the church. And then, of course, Saul, who we read about his dramatic conversion calling there in Acts chapter 9. Different men that would never be together in any other situation. Saul, before his conversion, would have sought to kill these men. And yet here they are together serving the Lord Jesus Christ in his local church. And you see how there's only one thing that could actually bind them together this way, and that is being united to Jesus Christ. And having that union with him, they are united with one another. And so it is a church united to Christ and united to one another, fully formed, that these call, the call to missions comes. That's the context within which it occurs. But notice what the church is doing when the call comes. It says there in verse 2, while they were worshiping. Worshiping. We heard the end goal of all of missions is the glory of God. Missions exist because worship does not. It is for Him. It is about Him. And the church is doing what it is called first and foremost to do when the call comes. They are worshiping the risen Lord Jesus Christ. They're worshiping the triune God. That word worshiping, it's that word that we think of as the word for that corporate worship, the liturgy. They're coming together to worship Him, following the regular principle of worship, doing all that Christ has commanded them to do. It's in the way of obedience, in obedience to the first and greatest commandment of loving God and of worshiping Him, that the call comes. But notice what else they're doing. It says as well in verse 2 that they are fasting. You can see it again in verse 3. Then after fasting and praying. It's talking about what they do in the actual commission. But it's as they're fasting. Now here we're confronted with the reality that this is something Christ expects his people to do. It's part of what we are called to do as Christians in this world. He expected. You think about the Sermon on the Mount. He doesn't say, if you decide one day that you want to fast. But he says to his disciples, when you fast, this is how you ought to fast. 
It's part of what we are called to do. Now, there's a lot of confusion about fasting today, and I'm not going to get into all of that as well. But one of the things that we can certainly say is what they are seeking to do by fasting is they are seeking the Lord. And they are seeking his guidance. They are seeking him to direct them. It's an expression of their earnestness, an expression of their expectancy, an expression of their complete and utter dependence on their king. And perhaps, we can't say this with certainty, but perhaps what is going on is they are burdened by the reality that Christ has given them a command. They know as they see what Christ is doing by his spirit in the work in the world, he has brought together this Gentile church. They have seen how Christ has called many Jews, many of the Samaritans, and yet there are scores of Gentiles who have still not heard. And burdened with the reality of the command, they are pressing and asking and pleading and saying, Lord Jesus, how should we obey this command? How should we specifically obey this command? What is it that you're calling our local church the church here in Antioch, to do. And so this is the context. This is the context in which the call comes. And here's some instructive things for us as well. This is the context in which it comes today. It comes to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It comes to us still in this context of the new covenant kingdom of Christ. And it comes especially, I would say, to churches who are burdened about the glory of Christ and the expansion of his kingdom and the command that he's given. They have this reality. They know that it's there, but they want to know, Lord, how we should do it. Another way of saying this is it's churches, as churches, as churches in our association, we need to be cultivating this missions-mindedness, this missions heart, this desire for the expansion and the glory of Christ to be known throughout the world. And as we are worshiping him and seeking his face, that's when he guides and directs us. So, brothers and sisters, let's be seeking to do that in our own church, and uh, let's be seeking to, to cry out to the Lord in these ways. So that's the context. But what's the content then of the missionary call? What, what do we see in the call itself? And here you have it in verse 2. The Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Notice a few things about this call. You'll notice that it actually comes by the Holy Spirit. And what that means in the book of Acts is it's coming directly from Christ through his spirit. And what we can say then very clearly is that a call to missions is a call that comes from Christ. Christ is the one who calls. It's an important point. Let me put it another way. An individual doesn't call himself. You notice even in the language it says, set apart for me. It's pulling back to Christ. For me, I'm the one who's calling. To what? To the work that I have called them to do. Christ is the one who calls. So there is such a thing as a missionary call, and it is Christ who calls. 
one of the great problems I do think that we have in our own day is many who are self-appointed missionaries. See it, those who have their own ministries, do their own things. Uh, I was in Nigeria, I guess it was uh, a year ago, about this time actually, while I was there. One of the things that was the most disturbing thing to realize was that in Nigeria, uh, the highest paid occupation in Nigeria is pastors. The five highest paid pastors in the world are actually in Nigeria. And all of them are self-appointed. And what they preach and what they claim to do is not to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, but their own made-up Ideas and religion, which mostly revolves around money. So we need to be clear about what the call is and who it comes from. It comes from Christ. But notice what the call is and who it's to. It says, he says, set apart for me. It's a call that comes first to the church to set apart and send. That's where the call comes first. Church, set apart these men and send them. In this work of missions, we know there's more than just those who go. The whole church has to be involved in the work of missions. And part of that is the whole, the whole church having the burden and playing each role, each part that we have to play. And here it's so important to recognize the doctrine of the church as a church is the body. 1 Corinthians 12, the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as Paul says there, we all have different gifts. We have different calls in that sense as to the function that we serve. We're not all eyeballs, we're not all mouthpieces, we're not all hands that would be grotesque and weird, but we all have our different place in the body. And so there are those who go, and there are those who send. And even within the church, and this is something I'm sure our brother Steve Martin is going to address tonight, uh, even in the sending, each part in the body, each member of the body that stays has a different role in that. We are certainly all called to pray. But there's different things that you can do in your responsibility in the church. Under the direction of Christ, his word, his spirit, the elders of the church, and all the members. As there's really a call for all to be involved in the work of mission in our various spheres of responsibility. But then the other thing that you see here is there is certainly a call for individuals to go. And he says, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. Particular individuals. Not all of the elders, not everyone in the church, not just this blanket statement, send somebody, but particular individuals. He says, set apart Saul and Barnabas. They are to do what? To do the work. As we'll talk more tomorrow, part of the work is for them specifically, they are cross-cultural church planting missionaries. They are called to proclaim the gospel and plant churches. And that is the primary work of missions. But it's important to recognize Saul receives this call and Barnabas received this call from Christ by his spirit through the church to go. 
But this is not the first time that Saul, Paul, has heard that he's to go. And that he's going to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, that is, to the Gentiles. Uh, turn with me to Acts chapter 9. You remember there. Acts chapter 9 and verse 15, we know that Ananias uh, was reluctant to go to, to Paul, Saul, the persecutor of the church, because he was skeptical. Has he really been converted? Is he going to uh, arrest me? But the Lord says to him in verse 15, But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Even then, Ananias knows that Saul is going to carry the gospel before Gentiles and kings as well. Did Saul, Paul know this? Well, flip over to Acts 26. Here you remember is Paul's defense before Agrippa, and he's recounting his testimony. I always love how Paul, when you know, he seems like he's supposed to be called to defend himself, and he doesn't do that. He takes every opportunity to proclaim Christ, and that's what he does before Agrippa. And verse 16, in describing the Damascus Road experience and what happened there, he says, the Lord said, this is verse 15 in the middle, the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Saul himself knew. The Lord Jesus said to him then, whom I am sending you to, to your own people and to the Gentiles. But do you realize that that was actually 10 years before Acts 13? There was 10 years' time from the time that Christ said, I'm going to send you out to the Gentiles, and the time that this call came to the church in Antioch, and he sent out with Barnabas. And there's some very important things for us to grasp about this. Yes, the reality is God does work in a man. He does fit him and gift him. We're going to talk about that more in a second. But And give him graces and desires for the mission work. There is an internal call that comes. But that call also is affirmed by the church. There's an external call as well. And it's ten years later that we find that call coming to Paul, Saul, to send him out. So there is a call. A call that comes by, from Christ to his church to send individuals to go. That's the content of the call in that sense. Go, proclaim the gospel, proclaim my name. I do want to take a moment and just make this point as well. We talked about how the church is a body. And as a body, we have different parts. And those who stay have certain responsibilities, and those who go will have certain responsibilities. And one thing that we do see in the New Testament as well is that there are those who are part of the church of Jesus Christ that go, 
who aren't necessarily called to be church planting missionaries themselves, but to join with, to come alongside, and to assist those who are planting in church. In the very passage that we have back in Acts 13, you notice in verse 5, when Saul and Barnabas go out, the Holy Spirit directing them, they took with them someone. It says they had John to assist them. Now, he's not one that the Spirit said to set apart for this work of church planning as they go. But he comes to assist them. And the reality is, as you read through Paul's missionary journeys, you'll find there's over 100 people that he mentions that accompany him. 20 that he specifically calls as co-workers, and some of them women as well. Think of names like, of course, Timothy, John Mark, Silas, Titus, Luke, Apollos, Demas, Epaphras, Phoebe, Priscilla, Mary, Junia, Mary, Yodia, Syntyche, co-laborers. So certainly one and the main type of one who was called in the sin, officially sent by the church in that sense is the church planning missionary. But there is this role for others as well to come alongside and assist, and we need to recognize that. Now, they may not be supported by the church. Uh, they may go and be like Priscilla and Aquila, tent makers. And come alongside. So you see the importance of that as well uh, as part of what takes place. But in a few moments that remain, we've seen the context of the call and we've seen the content of it. But what about the consideration of the missionary call today? One thing we understand when we work through the book of Acts is there are unique elements And there are continuing implications that go on. That was the age of the apostles. That time has ceased. We don't have apostles in our day who've seen the risen Christ with their own eyes. Uh, We will not experience that kind of Damascus Road experience. So what's unique and what actually stays? You're not going to have... Christ open up, as it were, the windows of heaven and speak to you directly. Those things have come to an end in that sense. But that doesn't mean that Christ isn't calling men today to go. And the question that we have to have answer is, how do we discern if Christ is actually calling someone to go? And here we're getting into the the issue and the question of how do we discern God's will? At this point, I just want to commend a helpful book. Uh, one book is that's helpful. There's many, but one that's helpful is a Step by Step by James C. Petty. It kind of talks about how do we discern the will of God. And the important thing as we work through that is to ask ourselves the question of wisdom. Seeking biblical wisdom to understand Is Christ calling me to go? And so there's several questions that we should ask as we think about ourselves and ask ourselves as we discern, has Christ called me to go? Has he called me to serve as a church planning mission? Has he called me to go in a a kind of ancillary sense? So there's several questions, and I just want to give some questions that we should ask. Not an exhaustive list. We can discuss this more, but just some things to get us thinking. And the first and most important question we have to ask is, is have I responded to the call of Christ to repent and believe? 
You cannot be one who's sent by Christ to proclaim the message of Christ if you do not know Christ and you're not vitally united to him and his church. Have I come to Christ? Have I turned from my idolatrous ways? Have I turned from living for myself and my own glory? Have I repented of my sins and trusted in him fully and completely for my salvation? Him and him alone. You know, we know there are those who've gone to the mission field and they are actually not Christians when they go. God in his mercy at times has converted them on the field. Some have gone into the ministry. You think of someone like Thomas Chalmers who was in the ministry for many years before he was converted. One of the first and most important questions that we should ask ourselves is, have I actually responded to the call to come to Christ? But another thing that we see as well and we ask ourselves is, Am I seeking to obey the commands of Christ? Not just one or two, but the whole counsel of God. Is that what I'm seeking to do? And you see, that's what the church is doing when the call comes. And Paul and Barnabas, they're seeking to obey Christ in all that he has commanded them to do. This, I think, is an important point that our brother Alan made and asking a missionary uh, candidate, are you wanting to give your life to Christ? Well, are you giving the Lord's Day to Christ? Are you giving that one day in seven? Because if you can't even give that one day, how can you give the entirety of your life? So we must be those who are seeking to obey all of Christ's command. Another question we should ask, and this is something when you read through missionary biographies as well, that you see is there is a real sense of a burden of the need. Now, a burden of the need is not the only thing. And a burden of the need is not what's going to keep you and sustain you, as we heard. It is God himself. But do you have a burden of the need? Do you sense the weight that there are thousands upon thousands that do not know the Lord Jesus Christ? Now, there's lots of things about statistics and, you know, questions that we can have about that. But there is a website called the Joshua Project. And according to the Joshua Project, which tries to keep up with statistics of unreached people today, as of right now, it says there are 42% of the world that are unreached that do not have access to the gospel. 42%. You're talking close to 3 billion people. Do you feel the weight of the need? Those who, if they do not hear, they will not believe. And if they do not believe, they will not be saved. So there's this question, am I sending this sense of the need and the burden. Related to another the earlier question we said, but to put it in a different way, am I serving in the local church where I am now? If you have someone who has a desire to serve in mission work and a desire even to, to be a church planner, but they are not even connected to a local church, they have never been a member of the church, they don't understand what a church is, how can they do that? So, am I serving in the local church where I am now? Am I being faithful to serve in the different ways uh, that I'm gifted and able right now? 
Are we being faithful to where God has called us? That's exactly what you see Paul and Barnabas doing, isn't it? They were leaders in the church, serving there, prophets and teachers, teaching the church there in the place that they called them. And it's in that faithful service, in that context, that he calls them out. Am I growing? Am I growing in Christ? Growing in prayer? Growing in evangelism? These are also questions to ask ourselves. But another very important question is, does my church and do my elders actually see the requisite gifts and graces Christ forming in me? That Christ himself is giving me these gifts and graces and that it is evident to my church, to my elders. And there we think about the church planning missionary. What are the gifts and graces that are necessary? Well, certainly all the normal gifts of a pastor, a preacher, a teacher. You think of First Timothy 3, Titus, those gifts, and others as well. You need leadership gifts, experience in evangelism. But let me just pause and say this as well. When you come to... When you come to 1 Timothy 3 and you read through that list, the most important thing that you see emphasized over and over again is not as much skills as it is character. One of the things when I speak to the men in our church and we talk about a call to ministry and we talk about what it is uh, to serve Christ in that way, I always say there's, you can summarize it in three things that are necessary. The first is the most important. And that is, you must have Christ-like character. Now, of course, you do need as well sound doctrine. Other things I would say. But then I would say, thirdly, practical wisdom and skill. You have to be able to rightly divide the word in that way. So it's the same for a missionary. But there's also gifts and abilities necessary, particularly for a cross-cultural missionary. You have to have, if you're going to another culture where there's a different language, ability to learn languages. If you can't, then you're not called to go and do that. (laughs) Certainly that's a part of it. But you also have to have certain qualities or um, character as well that are developed. One is a kind of doggedness to persevere in the midst and the face of difficulty. Um, You hear of about William Carey, and you realize he was there in India seven years before his first convert. Could you endure under that kind of stress? In my own situation, uh, some of you know I've been planting a church in Clarksville for the last five years, and um, you know, I tell many people I'm actually on my third congregation. <laughs> And that's because we're in a military town. And the reality of the number of the people that we started with, they moved. Military moved them. We had a second group of people come in. Most of them have moved on. And there were many a day where I said, I don't know if there's going to be a church next Sunday. (laughs) But will you persevere? A doggedness in that sense. But also a sense of flexibility, uh, versatility, as you are presented with situations that are going to be different and you're in a culture where things are done differently. Uh, So, again, to go to the example of when I went to Nigeria uh, last year, 
And we had a certain plan. We were going for a week to help train pastors. And our plan was to start uh, kind of teaching. I was doing some Old Testament biblical theology, and another brother was teaching hermeneutics. It was going to start on Saturday. We had kind of everything planned out, worship on the Lord's Day, and then lectures Monday to, to Thursday, and then on, on Friday kind of have a, a conference. Well, when we got to this small town there in Nigeria, it's called Egbe, uh, we learned, we didn't know this beforehand, we learned that a new king was going to be crowned the next day. A new king of Egbe, which I don't know if you've ever seen coming to America and all of that. King in Egbe doesn't mean that they're ruling over all of these things. It's more of a, a titular head kind of, kind of a thing. But there's a lot of pomp and circumstance. And uh, we had to go to the ceremony. You, you had to be flexible. Uh, we couldn't start our lectures and our classes that day. We had to adjust everything. And so it was after an all-day ceremony kind of started and met with the men, you have to have that kind of flexibility. That's just a, a small example. Many more could be given. You certainly have to have mental and physical toughness, and maybe you could even say a strong stomach and uh, physical constitution, depending. Now, of course, this depends on where you're called and what you're called to do. Um, again, I can remember when I was in uh, the Far East, and I was there with another brother, and we were up in, in a mountain region. And uh, when you don't get visitors very often in, in a place like that, you're considered the honored guest. And so what do the people do? They kill the fatted goat. And they only eat goat probably twice a year. And so when they kill the fatted goat, you better eat it. <laughs> Otherwise, you'll greatly offend them. But, you know, when you see them kill the goat, you see how uh, the flies have been uh, swarming around it. It's been sitting out in the sun for a while, and then they cook it. Uh, you're not so sure, but we certainly ate it. And, yes, I was sick as a dog for the next three days after that. But <laughs> that sense of, of uh, physical toughness and, and also a sense of that flexibility and a willingness to set aside my own preferences your own desires, uh, out of service and love to Christ and to others. And that would lead to the third and probably one of the most important qualities is servant-heartedness. Am I willing to die to self for the good of others, for the glory of Christ? Part of church planning ministry, as we'll, we'll talk about, is, is your goal is not to stay there as the pastor forever. You want others, particularly the nationals, to come and to take up the work, to be trained and to raise up. That means you're going to be pushing them forward to preach, to teach. And if that's the case, then you have to be willing to step in the background to serve. There's many other questions uh, that we could ask. Part, part of it as well is uh, if these things are so and God is giving these gifts and abilities, the church sees that and it's being affirmed, and then the church is asking, is there an opportunity? Is there a place, a field of service, one where we maybe know others or a providential connection? Where would we go? And many other things, but uh, let us discuss that more. But the most important thing is that we see that Christ is calling. And the way that he does it today is through his Christ-appointed means. It is through his Spirit 
through his word, and through his church. And so as we ask the question, how do I know if I am called? It's by going to the Christ-appointed means, asking Christ to show me, to show you, am I called to go? And if so, Lord, I will go. Let us pray. Let's pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would call and he would send and many would go. Our Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that you are our Savior. We thank you that we have a gospel to believe and to proclaim and to announce to the world. We thank you that you are the worthy Savior who did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but you were willing to humble yourself willing to be a servant, willing to be obedient even to the point of death. Oh, Lord Jesus, would you raise up many, even in our midst, to go for the glory of your name. Amen.